to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of the podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, and today we're going to be chatting about compassion fatigue with Mario Lombard. Mariel is a PhD student in the final stages of her thesis at Western Sydney University. Her research explores the prevalence and factors of compassion fatigue amongst secondary school wellbeing staff. For her research, Mariel was awarded the Research Award for the Teachers Guild of New South Wales. Mariel has presented her research to a range of audiences, including teachers, wellbeing teams, boarding staff, and school counsellors. She has been a secondary school teacher for the past 10 years and has worked in student wellbeing teams for a large part of her teaching career. Mariel is a proud product of a teaching family, having both parents and a twin sister who share her love of teaching. In this conversation, we discuss what is compassion fatigue? The subtle and obvious signs of compassion fatigue? Why more training in this area is vital? And so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mario Lombard. Mario, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Hi, Meg. It's so lovely to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about your research into compassion fatigue amongst Australian educators. What sparked your interest in this topic? So I've worked for a few years now in the wellbeing space. Um, So for the last seven years, I've been a year coordinator and compassion fatigue has really been a part of my own personal journey. A few years ago, I went through a particularly difficult year and I was subsequently diagnosed with PTSD as a result of the work that I was doing in, in supporting students through challenges. And I think a lot of research in general, stems from a desire to better understand our own experiences and and to make a bit of sense of it. So for me, it was really about understanding my own experience. I think understanding that it, it wasn't a personal failing. And the more I actually dug into it, the more I realized how prevalent compassion fatigue was. I think there's, you know, real absence of research in this area, particularly in education. There's a bit more research abroad, particularly in the US, but in Australia, it's only really emerging. And so we don't really know, we don't really have the language around this. So for me, it's really been a journey of healing, of self-understanding, but it's also developed into this deep sense of responsibility to ensure that I can do something about my own experience and to ensure that through research, I can you know, help to put in place measures to better protect other educators and to avoid them you know, having the same kinds of experiences that I did. It is so powerful when an educator has gone through something, they've learned something, and then your willingness now to share it with others. I think that is so powerful because, as you say, we all have a story. We've all gone through things, but let's gather with this common language so we can do something with it. So with this idea of language, what actually is compassion fatigue? Yeah, thanks for asking, Meg. So 
Compassion fatigue is a psychological condition. So it's characterized by emotional exhaustion and also physical exhaustion. And we often hear it called the cost of caring for those in emotional or physical distress. It's associated with caregiving professions. So professions like nursing, like social work, like psychotherapy, professions where empathy plays a key role. There are two terms that are quite well known, secondary traumatic stress, which is about having secondary exposure to trauma. And there's vicarious traumatization, which is a term that's a bit more commonly known amongst psychologists. But compassion fatigue is a bit of a broader term. It's um, referred to as a bit of a more friendly and, and general term, but it is only really emerging in education over the past decade. It's been far um, less known in education than in other professions. But what we're seeing, though, is that compassion fatigue can develop simply from hearing stories of trauma or distress and from supporting individuals through challenging times, which is essentially what a year coordinator will often do. And I use the term year coordinator because that's really what my research looked at. It was staff who worked in that well-being space to support young people. So what we're seeing is that compassion fatigue is an emerging psychosocial risk in education. And there's some really early research in Australia, some great research, for example, from Queensland, which has identified um, worrying impacts of secondary trauma on educators' well-being. There's a fabulous study from the Black Dog Institute a couple of years ago which was a pilot study of a year coordinator's training program in New South Wales. And what they found was that these year coordinators were experiencing strong emotions such as, and I'll quote this, stress, guilt, sadness, vicarious trauma, care fatigue, shock, hypervigilance, exhaustion, and sleeping issues. And so these are all characteristic of what we could term compassion fatigue. In my own research, uh, in the sample of about 220 educators from across Australia, 62% of those educators who worked specifically in the wellbeing space met all three core diagnostic criteria for PTSD by secondary exposure, which is one of the measures of compassion fatigue. And what we're seeing is that symptoms of burnout, which are part of compassion fatigue, are really acute within that space. So it's really that combination of burnout and exposure to secondary trauma, which makes up compassion fatigue. And I love how you use the term the cost of caring, because there is a cost with caring year in and year out. And as you were talking, I was thinking about that year level coordinator role where you are dealing with so many young people. You have so many stories in your mind as you're going into that class there is so much happening and we need to get better at managing that because we know the demand is getting higher and higher so for an educator listening what are some of the subtle signs that they may be on the path to this compassion fatigue yeah absolutely so if we're looking at the subtle signs we're looking at those early stages of fatigue so exhaustion as a result of the emotional demands of the role so this could be expressed, for example, through trouble separating your personal life and your professional life or having those difficulties in switching off. It might present itself, for example, through sleep disturbances. And for some people, it might even be expressed through a reduced ability to show empathy and to have that level of sensi sensitivity. So it's a bit of a feeling of, of a numbing. I remember one of the um, year coordinators that I interviewed for my research she described how she presented in class and for her it was presenting as tired and crabby. And actually it was a funny story because she had one of her a male students in class who actually brought it to her attention and who said something like, 
miss, this isn't you. You know, where's this happy teacher that we used to have? What's going on? And she was quite an expressive person. And so the students had really noticed that there was a change in her behavior. And, you know, she was actually very grateful that this was brought to her attention because she was able to consciously do something about it. So it's really those early signs that, you know, our behavior and the way that we interact is a little bit different. Yes, gosh, this really rings true to me. And particularly in my early years of teaching, I found it so hard to switch off from work. I found myself talking about students with other teacher friends over the weekend all the time and like, what can we do here? What can we do there? I really found it hard to disconnect. So they're the subtle signs. As educators, when do we know that we're experiencing compassion fatigue? Yeah, so compassion fatigue has the same symptoms as PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder. So there are three categories of symptoms. The first one is avoidance. So avoidance includes things like wanting to avoid particular people or particular places that might trigger certain emotions. Avoidance can also present itself as a numbing, so that idea of not being able to show the same level of empathy, so that feeling of detachment. The second category is around intrusive thoughts. So having those recurrent dreams or that imagery that just um, you know, continuously goes through your mind. So it's re-experiencing the events or a particular incident. And then the third category is around emotional and physical arousal. So that's really about strong emotions. So it could be really strong distressing emotions such as irritability or aggression, uh, you know, that feeling of jumpiness. And for some, it can present as a feeling of depression and it can also lead to a loss of productivity. So not being able to engage in your work as, as you would usually. And then when I think back to my own experience, you know, I'd reached a point where work was becoming my life. I felt really detached. And even there was a point where I felt internally frustrated at my students, which wasn't at all who I was. And I could remember, you know, replaying conversations at night and, you know, having these incidents um, incessantly explored in my head. And it resulted in a profound depression. I got to a point where I could cry at the drop of a hat. So for me, you know, those, when I, I hear about those three categories of symptoms, they're really, you know, what I experienced as a result of, of my work. Thank you so much for sharing your story because I think so many educators will feel really seen and understood by sharing these stories. And just that idea of avoidance, that we can get into these cycles of avoidance and to get curious about where is this coming from? And then that replaying of events something's happened and it can get loop over and over and over. And then that emotional piece, it really gives us a clear understanding of what compassion fatigue is and also gives us the ability to be a little bit discerning because I think for so many of us, we've kind of unconsciously disbelieved, oh, this is teaching. This is what it is to be a caring teacher. This is what you have to do. This is what you have to put up with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's really strength to being vulnerable. I think my own personal experience, I've not been ready to talk about it for a long time. And I think, you know, exactly as you say, the more that we have educators that are able to talk about it and we can normalize and try and remove some of the stigma attached to mental health, you know, we're trying to do this with our students and yet amongst staff, you know, we're a little bit more hesitant to share our own experiences. And so for me, actually learning to be able to be vulnerable has really been part of this journey of undertaking this research. And it's really exciting to think about people coming into these roles 
that we can have this language, that we can have this support and have better training around it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think training is one of the most important things that we need at the moment. I've heard compassion fatigue referred to as a occupational hazard. And if we want to be able to ensure that our, you know, provide staff with the training to be able to do their work, we need to be able to show them the risks associated with the work that they're about to undertake. And so I think that training is so important, whether that's in pre-teacher training at university for younger teachers who may be at heightened risk, or if it's now for current teachers that we're using compassion fatigue as a more common language within schools. When I think of interviews that I did for my research, one of the things was that participants said, you know, that they could resonate with these feelings, that they resonated with the psychological condition, but they'd actually never heard of this term before. And so it really showed that when you have the language around what you're experiencing, you're able to then communicate about it and to process it a bit better. Absolutely. And it's interesting to think about the risk and what are the risk factors to going towards compassion fatigue, because I'm assuming not all educators are at the same risk. Yeah, listen, it's, it's really hard to say who is particularly at risk. When we look at the research, um, interestingly, your strongest predictor is actually being a female, which is really interesting. I mean, we know that females make up the predominant percentage, so the larger percentage of educators. But what's interesting is even in my own research, females had a higher prevalence of compassion fatigue and even higher severity of symptoms. And this is as a result of gender-specific psychobiological reactions to trauma. So essentially, women are more likely to use emotion-focused coping strategies. They're more likely to show greater empathy and empathic concern. And this could be due to the socialization of women to be nurturing, to be emotionally expressive, to be emotionally responsive. So that's your first and your, your strongest predictor of compassion fatigue. The second one is empathy. And I find this really interesting because there's um, a bit of an empathy dilemma. Empathy is really a keystone to helping others. We know that empathy is a, a mechanism for facilitating therapeutic change. It's so crucial to these roles, to, to educators in general. But we also know that empathy is a direct pathway to compassion fatigue. So essentially, you could say that when individuals are generating the necessary empathy to do their job, they place themselves at higher risk. So that could be, you know, when we say, like, who is at risk? Well, anyone who shows empathy in their work, and that's probably all educators, are at some level of risk. The third risk factor is around caseload. Now, caseload is a bit of a, a difficult term to use in education, but one thing that we could try and look at is the number of hours that educators are spending with students who may be at heightened um, levels of emotional or psychological distress. So in my research, educators who were spending more than 16 hours, which was about, oh, sorry, 16 hours a week, which was about uh, one fifth of the sample, those educators were at heightened risk of compassion fatigue. So the correlation was a little bit higher um, for educators who had a higher caseload. But caseload would also relate to the intensity of your workload. So what we're seeing with, with year coordinators, but this also relates to any educator really, is that they're constantly dealing with what one participant referred to as a barrage of student issues. So it means that during the day, they're being reactive, they're responding to student issues, but then they're not able to do their own lesson planning. So sometimes, you know, they'll be working till late at night or even early hours of the morning. 
And there was one um, particular example. So one of the participants in the research who I remember she was explaining that, you know, she would be fighting back tears of coming to school every day saying, you know, oh God, this is going to be another crazy day. And what that does is it erodes our ability to bounce back. So caseload is really important, whether we see it as the amount of time that we spend with students in distress or whether we see see it as our workload in general. And then the last risk factor I would say, and you've mentioned it before, Meg, is that idea of the lack of training. But I think when we talk about a lack of training, it's not just training around compassion fatigue. We know that nowadays there's an increased expectation for teachers to take on um, or to be able to support the mental health of our young people. But what we're seeing is that educators are, are saying that they're feeling ill-equipped to do so. And, you know, I think of one of the participants in the research who described her wellbeing team as flying blind, which is really scary because we know that, you know, when you don't have the skills, it's going to lead to that sense of helplessness, of powerlessness, and, and of really not knowing what to do. So those four risk factors are some that we can look at to try and reduce our risk um, levels. And it really makes sense when you lay it out like that. Of course, we're going to go down the path of passion fatigue if all of these variables are in play at the same time. And especially around that education piece, I know for me, once I studied my master's and some of the units were counselling skills for educators, it's amazing the shift it had on my personal wellbeing because all of a sudden I had this toolkit, I had the ability to hold space, I had the ability to listen, but not to take all of the problems on as my responsibility to fix, because that can be such a heavy weight that we carry that we feel like we should fix everybody in our care. Oh, absolutely. And I think as educators in general, we have, you know, very often we take on that hero tendency which is we're wanting to be there for our students. We're listening to their stories. We you know, want to make sure that they understand or that they know that we will be there through this journey, through the difficult journey. But what that does is that it puts us at risk of individualizing some of that responsibility, so taking on some of their burden. But I think you know, when I listen to your experience, it's amazing that you've actually had that training at university because it's certainly not something that's commonly discussed in our pre-teacher training, which is so important. My gosh, when I had my pre-teacher training, there was no such thing as well-being. In my undergrad, we didn't even talk about well-being. It wasn't until I did my master's where we did these units. And I thought, wow, this would have been so helpful from the start because I went into education with no concept of the human element. I felt really confident in my content, but I had very little skill when it came to the human element. And so I really connect with that story of feeling like you're flying blind, like literally trial and error. How are other people getting through? What's possible? And I love that your research is really pointing to the power of learning and the power of skills. So when it comes to compassion fatigue, as teachers, what can we do to protect ourselves? Yeah, listen, it's, it's a really interesting idea that you say, what can we do? Because I'm going to push back on that just for a second. I think, you know, when we think about the onus for self-care, we know that at the moment it's sitting solely on individuals. When it's apparent that there are systemic limitations that are impacting on educators, we know, for example, that there are a lack of resources, a lack of counselling support, lack of general support um, at times within schools. 
So we should be talking more about a community responsibility rather than an individual responsibility. But having said that, we do know that engaging in in self-care is one of the most important things that we can do. We know, you know, the research shows us that the more we can separate ourselves emotionally, so leave work at work, the more that we can protect ourselves. So that's anything that's meaningful to us. So that could be, for example, spending time with family, doing exercise, reading a book. But the reason I say that, you know, it's something that we need to be conscious about is that idea of collective responsibility. Self-care is actually easier said than done. We know that very often it's the first thing that drops off when we get busy and You know, I think of one example of the participants in the research. She was a mom of young children and she was explaining just the chaotic nature of what life was like in her household when she got home. You know, work didn't finish. So she she would say, for example, she'd be defrosting the chicken at night, preparing dinner, and she'd be thinking, okay, well, I'm going to make this dinner, then I'm going to go and deal with this suspension, and then I have to call this parent, and then I have to try and be a parent myself. So it's just that crazy nature. So while self-care is so important... You know, we also have to recognize that it's not always so easy for us to engage in that level of self-care. Yeah, it is so difficult. And that's why I do the work that I do and have this podcast to really bring these conversations out. Because I believe that the more we're having these conversations at the individual and the collective level, the more we're going to move forward. Because I know that there are leadership teams that listen to this podcast regularly and they're having conversations. I would love to know that there's pastoral teams listening to this and thinking, okay, now we've got this information, what can I do? How can we check in with each other? When are we getting a little bit wobbly? When are we finding it hard to disconnect? What can we do? What processes, what guardrails can we have at the individual level but also at that team level that can really support us to navigate these difficult times? Yeah, Alyssa, I think there's quite a bit that we can start to do, um, even just as first few steps that we can take. So number one, I would say we need to raise awareness of compassion fatigue. So having that language, both in pre-teacher training and for our current teachers, as I mentioned, it's essentially an occupational hazard. So we need to be raising awareness of the risks that are associated with our work. The second one is that we need to increase training in mental health. And this is not just for staff who are in wellbeing roles. Really, it should be provided to all school staff because we know that all staff at the moment have an expectation that they're supporting the mental health of our young people. So in the absence of training, sometimes we know that at the moment there are a number of courses that schools can look into. The Black Dog Institute, for example, has just recently launched Building Educators Skills in Adolescent Mental Health, which is the BEAM program, Youth Mental Health First Aid Courses. There are, so there are a lot of courses, but it's so important that we invest in the mental health of our students and ultimately in the mental health of our staff. The third thing I would say would be we need to provide opportunities for debriefing and even supervision like what the psychologists have. We know that what makes it particularly challenging for our educators is that oftentimes they'll be listening to a student disclose something really important or something quite heavy. And then a minute later, the teacher will be expected to jump in front of the classroom, you know, and put on their best smile. And so they lack this ability, this time to decompress and to, re- to reflect. So having an opportunity to debrief is so important. 
But what the research shows us is that we need to remove the stigma that may be associated with speaking, for example, to a direct supervisor. So in the research, there were actually some great examples that came out and it gives us a lot of hope of what's happening in schools at the moment. There was one participant, for example, who talked about having half hour sessions on a weekly to debrief with a school psychologist. So that allowed her to unpack some of the stories that she was hearing. There was a trauma-informed school in Queensland who had, um, had a staff wellbeing counsellor. And so you can actually book in times for a chat or even attend after school group chats. And even in my own school, there's a great initiative that was started by our lead psychologist. And so it's around group supervision for staff who work in that wellbeing space. So it's a couple of times a term, have an opportunity without a direct leader to talk about their experiences. And there's always a psychologist that's present to uh, be able to you know, bounce off ideas and uh, you coordinators can seek guidance um, as well during those sessions. So we're seeing that schools are really trying to be proactive around that, but we know that debriefing is is so important. It is so powerful to be able to be in a space to reflect, to share stories, and then also to learn from those stories what was helpful, what was unhelpful, what was potentially harmful coming from a good place. Because I know in my experience, It's those supervision and the group sessions where I learn so much. And it may be the fact that a teacher's working through something with a student that I've never worked through before, but just being exposed to that story, it's in my mind of it may happen. In the event that this happens, I've seen a real-life situation play out and what was possible. And then I think what would be possible in our school systems if we created more time for this debriefing, for supervision, for that support from an educated psychologist that can help us navigate these tricky waters. So important. That level of social support, both outside of school, but also within school is is really important. And we know that the idea of working with colleagues and having that support from a team approach is so important. I remember some um, words of wisdom from one of our school psychologists. They always said to us, never be the only person who is supporting a child. I think when we're having those one-on-one conversations, we forget sometimes that there's a whole team behind us and we need to make sure that we're not trying to go through this alone, that we're seeking advice, that we're trying to share some of the, the challenges that are associated with supporting our young people. So having that level of social support is so important. But also think, you know, even outside of school, we forget how important the social support of those people that we love, how important that is. So from family and, and friends, I just finished Gabby Stroud's book, The Things That Matter Most. And there was one line in there that really stood out to me. It's um, one of the characters, Tyson, who speaks about his reactions to a critical incident at school. And he says something along the lines of, don't live alone when you're teaching. And <laughs> that should be one of the first lecture that they show you at university. And when I think back to my own experience, particularly when I was going through that really challenging year, living alone was something that made a difficult year so much more challenging. So I would say so important that we surround ourselves with people both at school and outside of school as well and making sure that we have those opportunities to share those emotions. So debrief both inside school and and outside as well. Thinking about that support from both angles at school and also at home. And really highlighting that there are things that we can all do, if it's the individual, if it's the system, 
And this conversation is a part of that, to have this language, to really move forward. So if you look back on your journey, what practices have really helped you to move forward in your teaching? Great question. It's been a long journey of working out what works. For me, it's really been about trying to put some boundaries to my work. You know, I think as educators, very often we get so absorbed in what we do and wanting to be there, wanting to respond to everything. And actually doing the research has been really good for me, mostly because it's taken a lot of the time that I had to sit around and and reflect. And so it's forced me to put in some boundaries. But, you know, I think it's so important that work is work. You know, it's, it's not all our life and we need to make sure that we really try and put in some firm boundaries. Um, so for me, it's really been about trying to spend time with the people that I love, um, trying to engage in activities, activities outside of work. Um, so for me, netball is really important, um, you know, engaging in, um, in exercise, spending time in, you know, outside, um, going for a walk. All of these things have been so important. But I would also say, you know, if, if you need your own personal support, um, so seeing a therapist or a psychologist is really, really important. You know, we would encourage our students to do the same thing. And so as educators, we need to sometimes listen to our own advice and, you know, try and avoid that tendency that we have to just power through. We need to sometimes stop and look at, you know, what, what, are, what are the things that we're finding um, difficult at the moment and then trying to find different ways to, to unpack that. Yes. Gosh, I know working with my psychologist, I have learned so, so much. And I'm always talking about David, my psychologist, who I see four times a year each quarter, because each quarter we'll chat about things. I think, oh, thanks for that. You've actually saved me months and months because I've worked through that. I've got new skills and I can go again. And I remember when I first started seeing a psychologist, I was thinking, oh, I'll be fixed in a few months and then we're fine. And then I realized that we're human. It's never done. It's never finished. And we need to have a more proactive, healthy approach to speaking to other people. And then sometimes I giggle to myself because as humans, we know to service our car at a certain time. The car has to be serviced. There's repairs and maintenance. It's got to happen. And we're so clear with that. People will talk about, oh, yeah, I'm getting my car serviced. However, we're not at that level yet where we talk about our mind getting serviced or our mind repairs and maintenance. And I really think we're moving towards that space. I think it's going to be so much more common for us to think about this mental space. How are we repairing and maintaining our mental health so we can be present, so we can have the joy and knowing that we're not alone? You're absolutely right. I think, you know, this idea that we don't get to choose when our mind takes a break, like when our mind gets overwhelmed. And so we can't say, I'm just going to wait until the holidays to engage in a bit of self-care. It just doesn't work that way. I think, you know, it's got to be a constant effort. And so we've got to see it as a race car needs to go through those pit stops and needs to have that continual support and and check in and make sure that it's still running fine before it can continue. It doesn't wait until the end of that race to, to come in for that pit stop. So I think it's really, really important that it be a continual process so we can reflect on how are we going? And we can normalise it for each other. We can normalise having these conversations at the department level, at a school level. What are we doing? What's supportive? What's not? And yeah, it just gets me so excited. You know, Mario, this conversation has really given us so much to think about. 
to wrap things up, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Absolutely. I am inspired by? I would say the dedication and the care shown by you know, big-hearted teachers all around Australia. We know it's not an easy job, but gosh, our teachers are doing just a wonderful job. I've got to say it was such a privilege to hear from educators for my research and these educators who were so vulnerable in sharing their stories, but they showed such a clear passion for their job and a love for their students. And so I find that so inspiring. When life feels hard? For me, my natural tendency is to fall into rumination. I'm very good at reliving past moments. And so it's something I've had to actively learn and something I try to pass on to my own students. We have to consciously call out our negative thinking. And so when we can be a bit more conscious of those thoughts, we can make the effort to engage in those things that spark joy. So even the smallest things, and that could be you know, reading a chapter, listening to our favorite music, going for a short walk. And I think it's important to say, even when we're too tired to do it, we need to make sure that we find time for us. An underrated skill is? Oh, definitely empathy. I mean, that's really what's at the core of my research. I think empathy is something that teachers show every day. They're listening to students. They're, I mean, we know how important it is, particularly for our young people at the moment in the midst of this mental health crisis. We know that our young people need to be heard. But we also need to ensure that our teachers are not undone by, the, by this tendency that they have to show compassion and to be empathetic. And I'm looking forward to. In the spirit of self-care, I'm going to choose something that's completely unrelated to work. And I'll say, um, I can't wait for the birth of my new little nephew who should arrive in a few weeks' time. Yeah, I just can't wait to, to meet him. And, you know, there's nothing better than a cuddle with a newborn. Mariel, thank you so much for being inspired to do this work, to dive deep into the world of compassion fatigue and to give us this language and a framework to really look at it for what it is and also a pathway forward. Thank you so much and thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks so much, Beg, and thank you for all that you do in normalising these conversations. It is so important, as you say, so thank you for this opportunity to talk about something that is so important for us. What a joy to sit down and chat with Mariel and I have such a better understanding of compassion fatigue and how I can better spot it in myself and the big-hearted educators that I work with. To learn more about Mariel and the wonderful work she's doing in the world, visit the show notes for more details. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 105. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.